Hi everyone, my name is Tad DeLay and this series will explore the content of my third book, the title of which is Against, What Does the White Evangelical Want? It's my hope that this book and this series answers a lot of questions or more importantly, frames a type of perverse ecosystem, a series of interconnecting events and figures and influences and so on that appear to have nothing to do with each other, but when put together, give you that sense of, aha, that's horrifying, but at least that trend makes sense now. So the five chapters of my new book will each get one or two episodes here, and in those chapters each analyze separate contested zones. So the chapters are Against Future on Climate Change and Apocalypticism, Against Knowledge on Science Denial and Private and Home Schools, and the Racism Tying Alternative Education to Science Denial. And then against sexuality, no explanation needed there. Against reality on conservative media and the Christian persecution complex. And finally, against society on populism and theories of fascism. So today's episode will lay the theoretical groundwork and give a bit of context to what I'm going to be exploring in the nine episodes following. But first, a word about me. I'm the author of God is Unconscious and the Cynic and the Fool. I hold a doctorate in religion as well as master's degrees in philosophy and another in theology. I teach philosophy and religious studies at colleges in the area. And my work is an interdisciplinary mix of psychoanalysis and critical theory and theology and religious studies, political philosophy, and a few others. My goal, though, is always to make theory public, to take these complex ideas and distill them and make these theory and history publicly accessible. We live in these deeply dangerous times and don't have time to play games with ideas that don't work, and we need to learn about the forces bearing so much turmoil in the world. So this series is going to intervene in one force of degeneration today, white evangelicalism, which we shouldn't casually dismiss as some sort of irrelevant or revanchist faith of simply a dying generation. It's certainly possible that our crises today will resolve themselves by natural processes when one generation dies off and another takes the reins, but that's a risky gamble. That old secularization hypothesis, for instance, told us that the world would keep learning and progressing beyond theism, but this proved desperately short-sighted well, beyond, uh, well before 9-11 fatally wounded any sort of secular optimism about the end of fundamentalisms in the world. So after that slaughter, in our immeasurably worse retaliation, a grotesque violence drenched in theological desire, we cannot pretend that religion is going to slumber and fade away. We find ourselves in this pivotal moment today for no perversion of any faith in the past ever held a candle to the destructive potential of white evangelicalism now. After all, the fantasy of a sexual encounter leads people to destroy their families every day. Why shouldn't a divine fantasy occasionally lead people to try to destroy civilization? I'm tempted to invoke Hannah Arendt's notion of the banality of evil here, because mass evil today happens not as some sort of killing spree, but as a program designed as a throwaway campaign slogan. Mass evil today is bureaucratic and indifferent and deadly efficient. So what's the genesis of this project? I'm not trying to simply talk about a particular moment, which will soon pass, but instead about a plague of turmoil, which will persist long after some, you know, for example, particular administration or movement concludes. And it's that plague that needs analysis. I was politically formed within three historic moments during my graduate studies, and they formed the background of my work. The first was the Great Recession, along with its inadequate resolution. 
It was a catastrophic loss of the future, an incomprehensible trap of debt and the obliteration of possibilities and the counterpressure of Occupy Wall Street, where the taboo against, you know, so, so as they say, publicly speaking ill of capitalism seemed briefly broken. But I saw just how little concern the boomer generation felt for the prospect of millennials like myself. And it told me something about the accidentally banal cruelty possible without any hint of malice from them. Second, a more visceral awakening occurred uh, following the murder of Michael Brown on Trayvon Martin along with so many others and the Black Lives Matter protests following these events. And I caught a glimpse of my privilege and learned that there were so many things that I couldn't see which would require me to listen. I also saw white crowds justify murder. I watched acquaintances and even relatives expressing their hopes that those of us marching in the streets would be run down by the traffic. I saw how truly controversial white people could find a simple request that a black life matter equally to any other life where officers of the state are concerned. And the final moment is still unfolding, and it continually teaches me that no evil is too much for the culture in which I was raised. In 2016, I wrote my dissertation on psychoanalysis and religion and populism in the midst of a presidential campaign. It was a peculiar time to discuss such a topic since the United States had not had a genuine populist movement in so very long and yet had vigorous movements simultaneously on the far right and center left. And I had assumed that my research would yield nothing more but a theoretical footnote to a bizarre period. And then in the early evening of Tuesday, November 8, 2016, we feel this collective shock as we realize the polls and forecasts were wrong. And then suddenly my work felt like it took on a new meaning. In the aftermath, I began hearing a familiar series of questions about white evangelicals that sort of drive why I ended up writing a book on this. Do they not grasp the notion of hypocrisy? Why the praise for charlatans? How could they not accept evolutionary or climate science? Why do they mock expertise and defund education? How could anyone inflict their children with conversion therapy? Why do they find the widely popular act of sex a threat? Whence comes the desire for fascism? To each of these questions, my response was always a complicated historicization of problems impossible to analyze in the abstract. These contradictions are networked and reinforced and doing precisely what they are designed to do. The reactionary liberals fantasy supposes evangelicals are dupes in need of education. And this is a deep miscalculation on the part of the secular liberal, and it misses a point. Liberalism is not going to save us. Sadism and masochism invigorate a destruction machine resonating with neoconservative militarism and neoliberal economics, and such an invigorated uh, drive cannot be resolved by fact-checking. Cruelty operates not at the level of information, but at the level of desire. And a fundamental axiom of my work is that we are not subjects who desire to know, but instead subjects who desire. Full stop. Your problem is that you'd think turmoil would want to be avoided. On the contrary, what happens when turmoil is enjoyed as the whole goal? Okay, so let's step back here. White evangelicalism is on the decline, but it's not dead yet. Today, Christians make up 71% of the U.S. population. White Christians account for 43% of the population, and white Protestants account for 30%. So how many Americans are white evangelical Protestants? Estimates on the percentage vary, but uh, so far as I'm aware, the Public Religion Research Institute provided the lowest estimate at 17%, a significant drop from 23% uh, back uh, in 2006. 
We also know that well over a third of whites identify as born again, so there seems to be a specific revulsion associated with the term evangelical. In other words, we're talking about at least 17% of the population, but understand that there's almost certainly a far larger part of the population inflected with evangelical sentiments and ideas that will prove more difficult to measure. But understand that white evangelicalism is not entirely unjustified in its paranoia. It is a faith that's dying, and it knows it. However, practically all research on the nuns, those claiming no religious affiliation, indicates some sort of resilient piety among the faithless, which suggests the cultural and theological influences extend well beyond those who claim the moniker. For instance, many of the nuns will say that they aren't Christian but do pray regularly and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Additionally, many beliefs incubated within this faith proliferate well beyond evangelical confines. Now, there's also a massive generational gap, given that 26% of older boomers are white evangelicals, while only 8% of younger millennials uh, identify the same. But then finally, because of that generation gap, there's this expectation that things are going to change uh, in terms of moderating belief. And I want to take a moment to uh, take this optimistic hope and quickly dismantle it. Namely, there's now this whole repetitive journalism genre in which young evangelicals are highlighted and their beliefs interrogated as if to suggest that the next generation will moderate. This genre erupts every so often with a viral story shared about social media, and each time the structure is the same, then the prediction is just as futile as the previous iteration of the argument. Uh, I don't have data to back up my claim here, but I'm going to make it all the same. White evangelicalism will not moderate. It might die off, but no new generation will moderate a religion built on whiteness and nostalgia and pre-forgiven chosenness. If this faith continues to decline and my work becomes irrelevant in the years ahead, I will consider it a welcome mercy. White evangelicalism is also a practically young faith, a fact its practitioners would surely reject. As a political project in current form, it stretches back no further than the mid-20th century. And in the latter half of the 20th century, this coalition forms between neoliberal capital interests and segregationists and Calvinists and conservative Christians such that the desires uh, merged into a novel iteration of this faith. The first hint of this coalition, as I see it, was in, uh, in the political production of the failed Goldwater campaign in 1964. And its emergence as a powerful force was on display with the religious right of the Reagan era. And its perfected form today is Trumpism. Aside from the disposable window dressing of doctrines quickly abandoned, all that sutures this faith to anything historic is its commitment to whiteness. And I commit this series to underscoring how whiteness curates the commitments they genuinely believe are rooted in faith. So I won't delve laboriously into psychoanalytic theory throughout this particular series, so I should clarify some of my theoretical scope in the introduction. The French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan is my primary point of reference here. We will psychoanalyze turmoil and fantasy to examine coalitions of racism and populism and faith and capital but we will refuse to listen too closely to the justifications and instead read actions as evidence of desire. All the religious activities we'll discuss are locations of enjoyment, although the enjoyment will often incur turmoil and anxiety. So this is one interesting thing to consider. Shame-heavy rhetoric can be boasting in disguise as a type of defense mechanism. For example, when today's Calvinists tell us that they are sinners saved by grace, they don't experience shame, but instead turmoil. 
Far from shame, they are boasting. If they feel the turmoil of God's judgment, they enjoy that alongside the confidence that they are uh, predetermined for salvation. So the catch is that all of this is just narcissism justifying indifference to the world at best and cruelty at worst. In turning inward to obsess over her standing with God, the believer never needs to ask whether she's destroying everything else around her. The unconscious will speak, and we need to listen to the speech of the unconscious expressed through action. Now, much of what I'll be exploring are fantasies. The term fantasy is not something I mean as any type of insult. Yes, in a sense, fantasy is a rejection of the world as such, but it's also a way to enliven the world. A few banal fantasies float across white evangelicalism. It seldom tires of arguing about hell or substitutionary atonement or biblical inerrancy. It never misses an opportunity to judge women or non-heteronormative sexuality. But if my claim that is that white evangelicalism as a political project today is quite recent, then I'm also claiming that these older ideas are utterly irrelevant to the vacuous believer wishing to argue today. The way I see it, there is only one doctrine, and type of already forgiven chosenness is its ultimate fantasy. Chosenness captures so many more specific doctrines, atonement and afterlife and perspicuity and predestination, the inability to lose one's salvation, and so on. It's very different from the concept of chosenness found in the Hebrew Bible. I'm saying that essentially evangelicalism saw the story of Abraham's blessing and coveted that story, and in their hands the story mutated into a Christianized simulacrum cobbled together from election and uh, pretentiousness and white settler colonialism. Chosenness to them means the believer has a direct access to a divine knowledge that the unbeliever does not. Taking chosenness for its use was a double theft committed by its supersessionism on the one hand and its racism on the other. Theological chosenness in this vein then bleeds into racial or national chosenness, like a manifest destiny. The chosen believer rest assured she's a member not only of the true faith, but the correct lifestyle, the blessed nation, and so on. Every other doctrine can and will be shown disposable. And as white evangelicals drop the theological jargon and identify more directly with white nationalism or the alt-right or whatever else, then the true doctrinal core remains. The chosenness means never second-guessing your narcissism or your cruelty. So what all these fantasies end up doing is justifying certain behaviors that the believer couldn't otherwise justify. In psychoanalysis, the term for these uh, actions is acting out. Acting out displays angst as if it's an actor on a stage. The child acts out to display frustration. The adult has a midlife crisis to show himself less dull. Or the liberal technocrat declares itself a member of the hashtag resistance. Acting out might produce real effects in the world, but its purpose is to display itself to the world, to justify, to express. In the form of faith, Acting out is what happens when a community can only reward behavior that is filled with anxiety but is never genuine. So the believer wants to display their piety or fidelity to their community to prove themselves worthy or better than the rest. The believer is acting out for a god. At least they think that that's what they're doing, but it's all actually narcissism. Just as today's teenager must always display their perfect world on social media, the believer must always act out on a false uh, display of perfection. 
I'm claiming that all of this acting out, all of this anxiety and turmoil that goes into uh, keeping up this act, well, that's all something that people actually enjoy. At least they prefer those feelings, anxiety and turmoil. They prefer that to shame. And that's the interesting thing here. Evangelicals should feel shame working to make the world worse. It's a fake uniquely designed to defend against shame, though. If you are sure that you're chosen, you never have to wonder whether you're wrong. Right. So in this sense, this series is not an exhaustive history of white evangelicalism, nor does it detail each and every problem demanding analysis today. If you want me to follow a more amiable definition, such as uh, David Bebbington's quadrilateral or something like that, or if you think that things couldn't possibly decay into the tragic hierarchies of contempt I'll explore in the end of the series, then listen no further. I want to be very clear about this. My claim is nothing short of this. White evangelicalism is far and away the most dangerous faith the world has yet known. And we need to consider its justifications and appetite and seduction and catastrophe. If climate change is indeed the greatest threat civilization has ever faced, then a faith aiding and abetting it so casually as the world collapses must face analysis. And next time we'll do just that as we dive into our first contested zone, which I'm calling Against Future. Future.